Under the Controlled Substances Act and Corollary State Law, the growth, trafficking, sale, possession, or consumption of psychedelics may be a felony punishable by imprisonment, fines, forfeiture of property, or some combination thereof. Psychedelical X is for general information only. Information provided on the show does not constitute legal advice, nor does your listening to the show create an attorney-client relationship with the host. Hello, I'm attorney Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics. So me and Ian know this lady, I think she's a Schedule One license holder um, with the DEA. She has, I think, a license to produce... I'm going to say unlimited, but maybe it's not unlimited, but it's a copious amount of LSD and psilocybin because she wants to do a trial. She was expecting to meet a DEA agent to do the inspection of the facility and all that stuff, right? They're like, oh, they called her and like did a facility tour over FaceTime. And here's the kicker. They said, oh, there's that locked cabinet over there. Like you can just keep the LSD and the psilocybin just locked up in that cabinet over there. And I thought it was was germane maybe to our analysis because my impression was that the DEA is trying to tell these these churches to have like all these fucking protocols and stuff for ayahuasca, which is obviously much less easily diverted than LSD. I would consider it to probably be one of the most, if not the most easily diverted controlled substance. Hmm. Interesting. You know, so I was thinking, let them get up there and say, oh, yeah, we require six security cameras, all this stuff. Say, oh, so you treat people fairly, schedule one license holders? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Simple here's, luck. Here's, here's the problem, though. Unless yeah. you've got that on tape, good luck proving it later. Yeah. Well, in, in terms of rules of evidence, though, wouldn't that possibly like an admission by a party opponent, though? I mean, it's, it wouldn't necessarily be hearsay, huh? Uh, if she if you yeah, called the exact agent, so though, probably that supposing, that though, that somebody from DEA would step up to the mic and admit having said that. Right. I, I, I'm saying that unless it's in writing, I highly doubt anybody from. DEA yeah, no, that's right. I can say, yeah, we told her that. Sure. <laughs> I just I just can't fathom they would do that. Uh, now, they will squirm in their seats when they are cross-examined on what happened in the inspection that they didn't bother to show up to and didn't yeah. schedule. So, yeah, in all of that torture, 100% is where the fun will happen. <laughs> yeah, because I guess it's probably standard that they actually physically show up and take a look. Huh? I mean, that's kind of rare yeah. for them to be yeah. like, let me do it by FaceTime. <laughs> I can't imagine that somebody actually did their job that day. um there's an episode of um oh god i think it was on vice news a couple of years ago yeah it was dea agents going to look at somebody's peyote farm and it was um i know exactly what you're talking about (laughs) yeah but they had the peyotes like in a cage. Like yes, yes, yes. I'm just trying to remember who who was involved in that episode. 
some researcher that had the license to to research peyote. I, I remember who you're talking about. It might be that same academic that did the paper recently about peyote going extinct. It, it might have been that guy. Now that I think about it, mm. could 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 be. But I'm just yeah. to your point. I'm remembering that. Yeah, they had this guy had three pages, each with separate <laughs> locks, all together <laughs> one fucking peyote cactus. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Yeah. Are you kidding me? It what, yeah, what got me is that the peyote was like in its own little jail. Like they had like this real yeah. little cage um, that was like had the dude, peyote in there. That shit will attack you, bro, if you piss it off, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the irony. It's literally the world's laziest cactus. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, it's holding everything together. Exactly. <laughs> Good. Good to finally meet you, Gary. Likewise. Good. Likewise. I've heard oh. so much about you from Greg, so I've been waiting. Same here, man. Excellent. I'm here. Yeah, if I ever get some free time again, ha ha ha! I plan on yeah. a trip to come see you guys. Yeah, come to totally. Austin. If you, if, yeah, if no. you go to Austin, I'll fly out there. Come, come hang out. Yeah, it's it's kind of ground zero for a lot of stuff, man. It's it's heating up there. Yeah, uh, for sure. I bet. Although I'm still putting my money on Miami. I, you know, I'm I am absolutely yeah. betting Miami oh, becomes yeah. the nation's psychedelic capital. Oh, you think so? Okay. Yeah. Could be. Well, good. So. No, this, this, we, we need these kinds of uh, positive, you know, friendly competitions. There's a word called, you know, we all need to be paying attention to shit and, uh, <laughs> and cultivating it and supporting it. So well, oh, I'm, I'm going to go to, I'm, I'm going to go to uh, Wonderland. Uh, you know, would say this first, first week of November, right? In Miami. Is it? Maybe it is. Yeah, yeah. I think Gary and I are going to speak at the uh, at the uh, uh, Canadelic again yeah. this year. That was a fun where, one. I enjoyed myself there. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Oh yeah, that was a where, good. Where? It, it, it's an event Sorry. called Canadelic. They had their inaugural event in twenty one. Greg and I both spoke uh, as a team at it. Um, pretty well attended. It, it was it was uh, well run. It was at the convention center by the by the airport. Um, and I think uh, the hotel was sold out. So that's usually a good sign. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. We're, uh, we're, we're trying for um, next year to get a keynote spot, which I think yeah. is uh, shooting a little high, but um, why not? You know, don't try. Why not? I will yeah, I, I will say, man, I do believe our panel was this, this last year was one of the most, highly attended ones that i saw i mean i'm not going to say as a fact but it seems to me from what i remember we had quite a quite a crowd oh for sure yeah our room had a lot of people i i you know i we're both up on stage busy talking so i didn't do a head count mm -hmm. but i would wager between mm -hmm. one and 200 in our audience i think so mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on the recent retreats from the scheduling on on the five and then doc and doi what do you what are your thoughts on that Oh yeah, I am really hoping to talk to Graham about that and and Matt. Um, best as I can guess, and that's all I can do because I don't have the inside scoop. DEA probably didn't want to get into the fight over what really should be defined as Schedule One because I think the challenge was. I think you're right. I think you're right. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. With the with the safety profiles and the medical efficacy in this class of substances being proved up, you know it really highlights other stuff too. You know what I mean? Where people start looking at the schedules and they're like, hold on. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the hallmark oh, yeah. one is it but, has to have a propensity for abuse. 
on new services right. nobody's That's tried. Right. Fuck you, prove that. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, they tried. Oh, yeah, they tried to pull evidence from like Erowid and like these other websites, and like this is what people are saying on these threads, and so it must be true and and all that. Like, oh, and they had rat studies too. Those are always real effective and and you know probative of of what's going to happen on rats or studies written by rats. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think you can tell the difference sometimes. <laughs> wow. That's fair. Okay, where the hell is Charles? We're six minutes past. God damn it! You know uh, him. Tell you what, let me let me uh, jump to my office desk real quick. I will shoot him a quick email poke to remind him we're on. Uh, but I'll tell you what, if he doesn't show up, I think the three of us have already started the episode and I just as soon keep it going. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that, pretty yeah. much. Probably. I'm quite serious. Keep talking so that I don't have to edit anything <laughs> on. Uh, I will be right back. Yeah. I'll poke Charles by email. Stand by. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. I love this approach. <laughs> yeah, my, I, I really think that, you know, the DEA, they want to keep out of the public record any favorable information about these substances that they've tried so hard uh, to keep under wraps and highly scheduled <clears throat> because eventually people start to look at that evidence and say, why the hell is this in, in schedule one? You know, if they yeah, haven't well, already. Well, what was their impetus though? If they did flinch, right. And back off, they've been sitting on this data around these particular medicines since 2012 Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, what, what was their impetus? Is it just like, is it, is it government overreach or, <laughs> or just you know, inefficiency honest, or they're, they're already on a payroll? Well, you know, they're already paid? My, uh, my, my thoughts are this. I think that there's some of these larger pharmaceutical companies that are doing psychedelic research that want, want it really, really narrowed down to just the one or two that they're really researching to be the ones that, that are, are de- rescheduled or descheduled, you know what I mean? Because if these other competitor new novel tryptamines might come out to be better than what they're doing, they don't want it to be on any schedule or unscheduled. They want it to be on schedule one. That way people have a hard time to access it, both researchers and the public, you know what I mean? And I really think... Yeah that it's behind the scenes stuff and they came with this scheduling thing on the on the on the behest of some pharmaceutical company or companies and jumped out there and didn't expect to get what they got and then they probably told them look we're not we're not going to go all this far for you on this because ultimately it starts to question our very existence and and past decisions we've made exactly <laughs> and how about the fact that you know, these corporations are people, but uh, a people isn't a corporation. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. That kind of people. And Amy, Amy Rising, this veteran healthcare advocate, was part of the suit against the five tryptamines, but because she represented herself in her individual capacity as an American citizen and a veteran healthcare advocate, that wasn't sufficient standing. And the uh, government uh, moved successfully to uh, have her removed from the suit. So. <laughs> So, so what is it? I guess uh, if you're a general member of the public, you can go post a comment online, but don't dare try to file a hearing uh, request. Yeah, pretty much. Well, that, that's just the whole thinking of the government called the reason we can put these on schedule one is because if they did have medical value, the only way you can correlate that is because there's an investigational drug study on that particular medicine. 
So <laughs> it's 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 one or the other in, in their book, right? Yeah. It's medically viable if someone's studying it. If not, if a company's not studying it, you as an American citizen, it's mm-hmm. not on the schedule, can't be studying it. Your your you know input or feedback or experience isn't isn't uh, valuable. Well, it's an administrative environment populated by industry players. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, we know we know these people that that door back and forth, right? Between the the guy headed the FDA was at Pfizer, and yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and for the for the non lawyers who uh, listen to the podcast, you know, a lot of this is actually business strategy as well. It's not just regulatory yes. issues. And no, by no. that, what I mean is the industry players actually like having the regulation and like having the obstacles because they serve as barriers against other people entering into their markets. You make the value so high, it scares and shakes off a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's easy. It's easier to spend money in the lobbying than to compete in the marketplace. You Uh get in and then structure the rules to keep other people out. So yeah. And, yeah. and here and here we are. <laughs> and and yeah. you see this reflected as well, like in, in this uh, patent land grab that's going on right now. It's insane. Yeah. Um, and thank goodness there are a few of our, our fellow brethren out there fighting that good fight as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the problem there is that the funds that go to the PTO, they go into a general fund, right? for uh, the government to use. And so the incentive for the Patent and Trademark Office to give people patents and let them be invalidated later or something like that, (laughs) they they can't lose if they just uh, keep the bar low. And these people have really no insight into it. And uh, Rick Doblin, I know, has gone down. There's some other people to talk to patent examiners. And uh, yeah, they're just... uh, not not qualified to make these kind of determinations, so these companies can get money on patents that are really they're they're speculative. That's a good word. They're just really speculative. So. Yeah, and I, I don't do any patent anything. I haven't in thirty years of law practice, but I've understood in talking with other patent practitioners that the trend used to be a PTO to find any reason at all to reject the application knock it out by any means necessary and that over the last several years the ethos inverted is that my alone in hearing that is that does anybody know if that's an yeah no that, that well i don't know about that the actual trend i just know the the government has that incentive built in and when things that they don't understand they're more comfortable letting companies litigate that in the marketplace later rather than them trying to make a determination so mm-hmm. All right. Well, I, I just to get back on topic here real quick, I did step off yeah. <laughs> and Charles an email. I'm not seeing uh, him showing up here. So uh, I think uh, if he does show up, we'll we'll uh, let him in and pick up wherever we are. But this means we can talk about literally anything we want or stick to the original topic. So what do you guys want to do? Uh, I would I would like to uh, also while and again we don't have to do it now I'd like to discuss the Ahe litigation you know going into settlement negotiations talk about the Church of the Eagle and the Condor sure uh, good. yeah but you know if we're not done I mean I'm sure there's still some stuff to discuss on on these tryptamine things um, 
One thing I would like to note is in the DOC DOI decision, they mentioned something that they're going to like do a different procedure that they might come back with a different procedure and try to schedule these. They said something along those lines. I cannot remember, but I'm just seeing if either y'all know what I'm talking about. And if you have any, any comment on it, there was some language in there where it's basically, it didn't say for certain that they're going to let the DOC DOI thing go. Uh, seem to indicate that they might come back again, like I said, with some other procedure to try to. All right. Know. This is text you're saying from within the complaint that Church of Eagle and the Yeah, yeah. No, no. Within the um, the DOC DOI, the, la the latest back away from scheduling, I think occurred oh. like last week, maybe. Mm. Um, yeah, they, they backed away from those two also, oh. but in their you know, whatever they, they published in response in the federal registrar to denote that. Yeah. mentioned something about possibly coming back. Uh, and I want to say it said, mentioned something in regards to a procedure uh, that they were going to try differently. Hmm. I don't know, but that yeah. sounds absolutely fascinating. So let's do this. Let's yeah. that puppy down and then let's plan on coming back and talking about it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That sounds like a good time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It, it Again, I don't know the intricacies a lot. I know some of them, but not a lot about the scheduling process overall and stuff. So I was interested to, if anyone knew what exactly they were mentioning. And I guess we could hit, sit here and pontificate on what we thought the chances of this surviving are. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I am, I am very curious. And, and let me ask you this real quick, Gary, the Analog Act. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on it? I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot of legal arguments out there, and I think that are valid, saying that it's unconstitutionally vague. Uh, and I think a court in Colorado, a district court in Colorado, has held it unconstitutionally vague before. Do you have any specific thoughts on it or ever, ever yeah. dealt with it? Yeah. Um, I, I've never personally had to address it in my professional life, but I researched this for a small chapter in my book. Mm -hmm. And from Rep from memory, what I recall is that the the districts are divided. Some have yes. rendered rulings that suggest this is probably not enforceable. Others have enforced it. And there's just a very small number of cases anyway uh, that have gone to the appellate level regarding it. I think there's plenty to criticize about it. And I agree that vagueness is top of the list because to have a law that says, hey, this thing that's not specifically illegal, but kind of mostly looks like this thing that, <laughs> yeah, that's illegal too. And you have to guess yeah. whether it's similar enough that you trip. Um, yeah. That's not fair <laughs> notice to the public. Well, and, and I'll tell you too, Ian and I recently looked into it and I found a really good law review article from the University of Nebraska. And um, in the article, I mean, it, it just highlights that like, there have been people who received expert testimony before ever even producing a chemical saying that we don't think this is structurally similar. Uh, basically, we don't think you fit within the, the uh, uh, Analog Act. And the people still got convicted. And the people law review basically said, you can never predict how this is going to go. Like you could have expert testimony report on this before you ever even start. And still end up falling within because they just kind of the courts who do enforce it just kind of make it up as they go. Yeah. Well, well, and also it begs the question, if you're going to claim something is similar, what metric are you using to assess similarity? Is, yeah. it, is it the the type of atoms that make up your chemical? Is yeah. How they're configured? 
Is it the effect that is produced? So can I find two completely physically different chemicals that have the same effect and therefore say I'm in the analog act now? Well, un doesn't yeah, under, go ahead. Yeah, that was the point. <laughs> Yeah, un under Fifth Circuit president, it's one, is it substantially similar or similar, you know, structurally, which the law review said, there is no way to determine that like they've had stuff like completely crazy held to be, you know, some similar. But the second part of the analysis is this, and that the substance has the same or substantially similar. Uh, well, I can't remember the three words. It's like, uh, it's definitely hallucinogenic. Uh, uh, oh God, where depressant, 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 and stimulant. Those are the three. Yeah. Terms. So, so it can either be substantially or the it's same or substantially similar in those effects, or you market and sell it as being the same or similar in those those effects. And so, yeah, it's it's interesting because I guess you could have a substance that's very similar, and might not have the same effects, but then you could also have the vice versa mm -hmm. on, on that one, you know? Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And then, and I don't know if the chemistry supports this because I'm certainly no chemist, but yeah. I do know that there are isotopes of atoms and depending on the number uh, of, of neutrons, you get a different atomic weight, I think overall, and I may be butchering that. Uh, so, you know, you could have the same chemical or same molecule, but have different total atomic weight, depending on which isotope is in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. Is that the standard? I really don't think there is one, to be honest with you. Mm. I think if it's similar, that's the standard, you know, but I don't know if there's been much clarification beyond that to where there's really any discernible, and that's what the law review said. There yeah. really is no discernible standard, even from the case law, on what might, what is or might not be uh, substantially similar in or similar in, in, in the, you know, structure. Yeah. Well, th you in know what, now that I'm thinking about this, I, I do have something affirmative I can say. Okay. It's worth attacking early on in your criminal defense case, mm -hmm. uh, on premise of some sort of a motion to dismiss. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I also can say with absolute conviction, if the court didn't grant that motion to dismiss, you're going to have one hell of an expensive defense case because you're going to have to be pulling on, mm -hmm. you know, PhD level scientists as experts to testify mm -hmm. about yep. why this thing you're being accused of is not something you did. Uh, that much I can say with certainty. You don't want to be that defendant. No, 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 you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, <clears throat> I know those chemistry experts aren't cheap. <laughs> no, 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 no. And the cases I've read, there were multiple called. <laughs> and there was one case actually where the DEA's chemist did not agree on the structural question. The own expert witness for the opposite party couldn't agree, and the dude still got convicted. Interesting. Well, that, yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's proof that judges exercise discretion in deciding. There's you know, right, yeah. Which yeah, I mean, you can believe it. How far they'll believe them. <laughs> You can you can appeal it. I guess that's all they say, you know, but this drug war has led to this just insane view of people using substances, right, or selling substances where it's like you, your, your initial impression, not mine now, but, you know, there's people like, oh, he sell drugs or this is substantially similar, you know, like, but they're probably relying on, look, he sold this stuff, some kids did it. You know, they got hurt or whatever. And that's probably all the judge heard. You know what I mean? After that, it was probably over with uh, for him, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And 
look, there's very little nuance in the courts regarding psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And it's not the court's fault. You know, we, we all were brought up with the propaganda of the last 50 years that all drugs fall into one category and that's drugs and all drugs are bad. And there's no nuance of distinction. There's no flavors or rainbows in between. Mm-hmm. And this is the hard work that you, me, and all the other lawyers out there are trying to do is to educate the courts and the public that there really are distinctions to be drawn and you can't just paint with a sledgehammer. Yep, that's right. Um, and, and you know, I think if the public were made aware of some of these, pat- like when I really started to look at, at, at the scheduling and look at the substance and then scratch a little bit into the actual science and data, you realize a couple things. You realize this, that if, uh, if, if there's any medical value to a substance that can be reproduced chemically consistently and can be patented and monetized by the pharmaceutical company, it gets on a lower schedule, despite being much magnitudes of, of, of times greater dangerous, you know, than ones what at the top. Yeah. Well, your best proof of that is fentanyl. Mm-hmm. It's killed hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands, but you can still go get it by the bucket load at your doctor's office yeah. Yeah. and even cheaper on the street. I understand you're aware that Leonard Picard had, had predicted the <laughs> fentanyl epidemic like, I don't know, oh, like yeah. 20 years ago or yeah. something like that. Uh, Leonard was just a guest, uh, yeah. like two weeks ago was a guest, oh, okay. at the psychedelic bar association, uh, Lark meeting so yeah he he spoke about that Uh, by the way very nice man yeah Uh, you ever get the chance to meet him he's just so pleasant and such a calm demeanor and for all the years he spent in prison he could have come out so bitter and he's not well you know here's my thing on it i think people who who have done quite a bit of psychedelics and spiritual work probably fare better in prison than a lot of other people i would imagine as far as mindset and being able to actually you know make it through without suffering so much yeah i think that probably played in on his ability to go sit that time and then come out and be as humble and and like you say just a good generous person as he is oh no no doubt no doubt um you know while he was in prison he wrote rose of paracelsus i don't know if you've ever read the book it's it's pretty dense and heady but uh to read it is a psychedelic experience oh wow yeah. Yeah. Shoot me, shoot me the title of that. If you get a chance uh, by email or text me, because I want to I definitely want to check out anything he's written. Uh, do me a favor. When's your birthday? Cinco de Mayo. All right. Be patient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Least, yeah, I was just go. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering about, you know, wanted to kind of start out the conversation with um you know, the scheduling decisions. I and, and I think it really fits in my view. Again, it's just my view. I think it fits within a larger framework of what we're seeing uh, with the quagmire being the the right to try act. Now that, that seems to be pretty highly inconsistent with their actions in other cases and scheduling decisions, as well as yeah. um, I will say that doctor friend of ours told us that the DEA people told her that, you know, that they are trying their best and actually making steps to be more lenient with psychedelic, uh, you know, research, but I guess that's not bleeding into actually using psychedelics. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and, and you know what? It's actually fair to give DEA credit. They are approving more research. It's not as much as people are asking for, 
but they are starting to open to that. So kudos to DEA for that. Oh. Uh, they're still too slow and tepid about it. <laughs> yeah. And they've just got completely backwards ideas on, on these other things like religious exemption, which we'll, we'll eventually get to in yeah. this conversation yeah. about religious exemption. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, it's happening. You had something to say, Ian? The, the, yeah, pro yeah. the, the problem, yeah, the, pro the problem with the DA, just like the USPTO, is that the DEA has increased all these quotas because they're increasing, in effect, the number of useful licenses people can get. And I think I did the math. What was it, Greg? I think it's like, you know, three, I think uh, over 300 million a year is their budget through the licenses they get. So <laughs> they're, they're, they're the, they're running the chicken coop <laughs> and uh, yeah, they, they get paid as more, more licenses. So they're, they're just now in effect getting to decide who gets to play with the corporations. Right. And if you want to, if you want to play, you got to get a DEA schedule one license. If you want to be able to touch those and uh, yeah, the money goes straight to them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all true though. But at the same time, the, much of what we talk about should subsist outside of that purview regardless mm -hmm. um it is unfair yeah, absolutely scooped up all of the jurisdictional coverage over it mm -hmm. all right well <laughs> we, are, we are definitely uh not seeing charles okay <laughs> well uh in his honor i guess let's you want to jump in and talk about the <laughs> litigation yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. That was the whole premise for the episode anyway. Yeah, I, I yeah, yeah. Complaints available. So if you want me to do a screen share, I can do that and we can sort of narrate on top of it too. So let me know if you want to do that at any point. But uh, Gregory, Ian, why don't you set the stage for what the hell we're talking about? Yeah, well, so and I want to say that they filed suit. It was in 2021. Arizona Yahe, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was Arizona Yahe the Vine of Light Church. I just recently understood, I think, that those are two separate churches. Uh, yeah, I, I believe that's okay. correct. Um, you know yeah. what? I just, I, I just pulled the case up here. Uh, the caption reads, Yahe Assembly, Winfield Scott Stanley III in his capacity as founder and director of Arizona Yahe Assembly, plaintiffs. Oh, wow. Okay. So okay. They've, stri they've stripped it down to just the religious organization and its director yeah so plaintiffs but also part of it initially right was the north american association of visionary churches yeah uh navic as uh yeah, they got they got uh uh kicked out on pretrial motion yeah and and uh the complaint on the yahe assembly case is now up to its fifth iteration it's, it's yeah, yeah multiple times which for those of you who don't practice in federal court at all is in and of itself a miracle for a yeah. judge to tolerate this many amendments. Yeah. That, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are so many damn procedural motions. I mean, mm -hmm. and obviously the facts of the case dictated it because the, you know, the, their original leader, um, God bless him, by the way, uh, you know, got, got the door kicked in. Right. And, and all this, which led to all these civil rights lawsuits, right. That were making allegations as I'm sure you're aware that the DEA, you know, was using high intensity drug trafficking funds to pressure the local sheriff's office to go make this, uh, uh, uh you know, into go kick the dude's door in. And, um, 
So yeah, that that kind of marred it with all kinds of civil rights claims, which got caught up in procedural motions for well over a year. And I think, you know, the compelling thing for me that I, I like to see uh, is that once the dust settled and the court's looking directly at their RIFRA claim, the DEA approaches to try to settle. Now, you know, we can learn, and, and we'll talk about this too, is what lessons can we learn from SoulQuest's attempt to negotiate with the DEA? Uh, what lessons can the lawyers here learn in order to make the certain, you know, set certain parameters to ensure that that they're protected through that process to secure jurisdiction and, you know, continue jurisdiction in district court? Yeah, yeah. And uh, for the benefit of the listeners, just to, to lay a little more foundation, yes. what, we're, what we're talking about here is that there are at least two, possibly more pending federal lawsuits at the moment filed by religious organizations that just coincidentally happen to both be uh, based on an ayahuasca sacrament. And both of these organizations are having trouble at the border and uh, customs and DEA interdict and prevent the importation of their sacrament from outside of the country. And even worse than that, the DEA and local law enforcement are coming in at the local level and arresting these people and taking their sacrament and not acknowledging the existence of a religious exemption for it, even though we have existing Supreme Court cases acknowledging this. So these are ongoing problems that, that these two particular religious groups that have chosen to file a lawsuit have, but it's an ongoing problem for all those religious groups out there who haven't filed lawsuits but engage in same or similar practices. Uh, also worth to comment, because my malpractice carrier likes that I do that, uh, nobody on our podcast today, not Ian, Greg, or myself, are lawyers on either of those cases that we're talking about. Uh, we don't necessarily even know the facts because we're not exposed to those files. We're just uh, pontificating as a, you know two or three smart lawyers who have an interest in the topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. All that said, that's what we're talking about. It's, yeah, it's yeah. an ongoing problem of getting a federal agency to acknowledge the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, that said, Greg, you were you were mentioning a moment ago also the, the right to try stuff. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but about two weeks ago or less, uh, Ames Institute got a final determination letter from DEA. Oh, uh, no doubt. Yeah, it, it finally happened. Yeah. So uh, what had occurred, Ames filed their lawsuit. Yep. Yeah. Uh, got booted. They went up on a quick appeal. And the, the appellate court basically said, hey, you haven't achieved a procedural milestone entitling you to be in court. You need yep. a final decision from the administration. So they got booted on a technicality, not on the merits. All claims were preserved. But they finally got that letter. I've got a copy of it. I'm actually going to be doing an episode uh, where okay. I'll talk on top of it. But it exists, it's there, and they're off to the races now. So uh, this will be in front of a federal court if it hasn't already been refiled. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I didn't know that. But yeah, that's, I mean, and that's all they really want. You know, at the, at the end of the day, all they wanted was to either get the right to do it or get a final determination letter, right? One of those two things, that's it. Like, we're not asking. But the DA literally, and it's so sad because, you know, by the nature of the case, right to try, 
obviously there might not be just a ton of time for these people to to go yeah. through this whole process and they were withholding like you say the the agency letter which you know their their attorneys wanted to say that well the amount of time constituted a final agency decision you know which i guess the court disagreed with but at least they got it that finally to clear them cuz yeah. time might not be the the most uh uh you know, uh, thing here that, that these people have. Oh, uh, agreed. And and for the listeners who don't know what the hell Greg and I are talking about, there are uh, statutes at the federal level. And I think 41 states also have similar statutes called right to try laws that stand essentially for the proposition that if you have a, a diagnosis uh, of a terminal conditions, meaning you're going to die, uh, and if you have exhausted what Western medicine can generally throw at you and you're not going to get better or you're not getting better, you have a legal right to try a medical Hail Mary under the right to try laws. And what you're subject to terms and conditions, of course, but what you're entitled to do is apply for the right to use drugs that are in the experimental phase but haven't achieved total approval yet. So things that are at schedule, not scheduled yet, but at, at uh, phase two or three of study, you can apply and, and get limited permission because you're in a special circumstance. And the case we're talking about was exactly that. Some terminally ill, can terminally Ill cancer patients, their physician uh, and some others applied for exemption to be able to use a substance derived from psilocybin that is under study and expected to be at full approval within about two years. But these patients aren't going to be around in two years. They want to use it now. And DEA had to give that approval and said, no, you cannot have that approval because Schedule 1 says you can't. Well, who the hell put it on Schedule 1 to begin with? DEA. Uh, so that's part of your problem. Uh, they yeah. are the gatekeeper. They could reschedule it, but they won't. So what I'm really interested to see is what their lead argument is going to be mm -hmm. now that the case is going to be able to move forward again. And mm -hmm. my suspicion is that DEA is going to say, look, we're we're sympathetic to the question, but our hands are literally tied because it would take a literal act of Congress for psilocybin to be permitted for use under right to try. I think that's what they're going to say. I don't agree with it, but I think that's where they will go. Oh, wow. But, I mean, so it's the right to try act. It doesn't preclude someone who to, from taking a schedule. One. It doesn't explicitly exclude someone from taking a schedule one that's in investigation. No, but I think so, that's that's the right there. That little moment is exactly where I think the, the argument dwells is I think what DEA is going to say, look, if you had a new investigational substance that wasn't scheduled at all, we'd have no problem with this. We'd approve you tomorrow or today. But because what you've come to ask us for is something already on schedule one, you're effectively telling us to deschedule it or reschedule it for your particular instance. And we don't have authority to do that. I think they do, but I think what they're yeah. saying is that they don't. And that's yeah. the that's a distinction here. Yeah. So from yeah. an optics perspective, though, never mind the legal arguments. Yeah. I think what the pressure point here is to say that DEA really um, was faced with a terminally ill patient and said, nah, we'd rather you died as you are. Yeah. You yeah. Know, suffer unto death. Goodbye.
That's yeah. the optics of this. So, it, I, And what makes it worse is, you know, when they first started back psilocybin research, and I think they had done some previously, but like one of the first major studies was on people who were terminally ill, like in the life study was like one of the first ones they did, I think at NYU maybe, and showed incredible results. They've made all kinds of documentaries about it and everything. Uh -huh. These people speaking about how they were actually able to live longer, you know, through the experience. And so to me, that just confounds it. It's like they, there's been some research done on along these lines. The people came out just fine. As a matter of fact, much better. You know, there's already evidence that, that this works. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, that, that's all I can think about sometimes when I hear that. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the worst part, of, well, maybe not the worst part, but amongst bad parts uh, is, is also the consideration that. In asking for psilocybin for a terminally ill cancer patient, you're not saying, hey, we're hoping they survive and get better. All yeah. you're saying is we just want to take a little bit of the anxiety away. Imagine you're laying in bed knowing you've got a death sentence. How the hell must that feel? And here's something yep. that might just let you have a nice couple of days mm -hmm. and still you can't get permission for that. Are you kidding me? Yeah. yeah. It's the most inhumane iteration of enforcement of poorly drafted policy. Yes. And I think the administration has enough discretion to say, you know what? We're going to approve this. And if anybody doesn't agree, sue us. Yeah. Say, yeah. yeah we're going to disapprove it. Sue us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. And, and there was been a pool, though, too. Haven't some of the people and lawyers involved gone to some of the federal legislatures? Uh, and getting them on board of like writing a letter or doing oh, something. Yeah. Or I think they're going to amend it actually, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, uh, weirdly enough, how about this for a pairing out of, out of the twilight zone, uh, Cory Booker and Rand Paul. <laughs> I mean, together in sponsorship. Wow. Can you wow. imagine those two agreeing on anything? Well, it, psychedelics are a bipartisan issue. If you ask me hundred <laughs> uh, percent. And, you know, I really do. I think this is this transcends party lines as far as and again, this relates to overall drug war. You know, we're seeing how arbitrary and capricious these laws and their enforcement can really be. And I and I, I watched something last night that made a good point. They said, you know, for the most part, the drug war has affected, as we all know, and as intended, has affected mostly minority communities and poor communities. Right. Well, now with the fentanyl epidemic, it's starting to go up the ladder quite a bit. And people are starting to see first firsthand the nasty nature and the effects of this drug war in the Controlled Substances Act. And, you know, hopefully maybe it gets the public's mind to shift a bit. Uh, yeah, to be cynical about it, doesn't anything that hurts affluent white people get more attention? <laughs> yeah. Am I wrong? No, you're right. I, no, you're right. I wish I yeah. were wrong, but. Yeah. I don't think I'm wrong. It, in the fentanyl epidemic, there's an article in the paper or any publication almost just about daily on it. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Here in Arizona, I mean, you know, we've got so much stuff flowing over the border that's tainted yes. with fentanyl that isn't even supposed oh, to have fentanyl in it. Yep. There are deaths here all yep. the time from people on the street getting an adulterated product. Yep. I've known a guy who who got meth and, and died. Like, like from a fentanyl overdose. Yeah. 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 You think you're getting one thing and you're getting something radically That's different. Right. Yeah. It's completely dangerous out there now. And mm -hmm. you know, the thing is, is the fentanyl it's in, you know, 
I've watched several shows on, you know, documentaries on YouTube, and it's pretty clear that like the war on drugs, as as Leonard Picard predicted, caused this fentanyl epidemic. You know what I mean? Like like had these laws not been so strict and onerous and all that, like we might not have ever gotten to this point because, you know, I say it, regular heroin could have got in, you know, that people would have had different standards on what they're selling and stuff and that they're fighting and clawing to make money. And the next logical grab for them was, was, was this, you know, and. Yeah. When, when, uh, when Leonard spoke about it a couple of weeks ago, he was pointing out that, he was asked to look at the question of, you know, what would like the next big drug be? And divining from his experience, uh, he figured out that, you know, look, you're going to have something that's easy to manufacture, that's going to be cheap, and that's going to be ubiquitously desirable and also have some element of uh, uh, addiction to it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that and other things from his experience, he was able to say, boom, fentanyl's going to be your your next demon to uh, haunt the world. And boy, he was spot on. Yeah. Um, here, have you ever uh, studied the, um, the opium wars? Have you ever looked at that question? Not, not in a lot of detail. I mean, I know that I think it's a little bit of the general contours of what went on, but I've not done just a detailed analysis of it. Uh, me neither. I'm certainly no historian, but I get yeah. fascinated by this stuff. So I, I go and, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what we're seeing right now with fentanyl, it's not terribly different than than the opium wars, <laughs> you know, yeah. importation of mass amounts of a, a specifically a narcotic aimed at addicting a population so you could profit off of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just a repeat of that cycle. And in fact, it is narcotic, specifically opium or, or, or opium derived uh, chemicals that were the cause for the first drug laws, because this mm-hmm. particular class unlike all other classes of drugs, did come with a certain degree of pernicious problem. Oh, absolutely. And all of the uh, lo- drug laws passed in the United States all have racist origins. So the first drug laws were mm-hmm. passed around opium because of the Chinese mm-hmm. smoking it in San Francisco while they're building our railroads, and then later it was the Mexicans. So, yeah, you're right. This is just like a, the drug war has been going on really for thousands of years. And... Uh, used to be called the spice trade before oh, yeah the, absolutely <laughs> it's it's never stopped and we keep kicking it around and you know <laughs> renaming it and recasting it but it's the same thing mm-hmm. but unfortunately all these other drug types and and classes and categories kind of just got snowballed into this special separate unique problem that narcotics suffer from in, in fact yeah. you see the label narcotics applied broadly over classes of drugs that are by definition not narcotics mm-hmm. but we yeah narcotics anyway mm-hmm. so this this is also part of what we must overcome yes yeah and i tell you here's and you know how this younger generation is i wonder when they're gonna start saying look these laws are racist in both in intent and most definitely in effect at what point does continuing to uphold them become an act of racism yeah, yeah, there is definitely something in the world awakening to that. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah, um, yeah. I do, I do wonder though if the backlash from the the conservative side of the world is going to just call that more you know liberal wokeness and woke, woke people. Yeah, yeah. I don't you know. You know, there probably will be, but I, I think at the end of the day, 
you know, with a clear admission by the people that it was racist and intent. I mean, you can say what you want, but it's like, uh, <laughs> let's look at the facts, you know, and it just, it is what it is. And, and it's sad. And, but I do feel both, you know, with the way that I'm seeing what's going on with the DEA, especially like I see it getting cut back. I mean, I do, I see strides being made. And I think that, you know, if everyone who's playing their part keeps pushing hard enough that we're going to make some good progress. Now, I'm not advocating completely take out the Controlled Substances Act. I mean, if they did, it wouldn't bother me. But I think that we're going to need to go in and rework some stuff and, may, and probably reschedule quite a few things to really make it fair, I guess I'd say. Yeah. Well, and and tying everything we've just said thus far to these lawsuits. Yeah. Part part of, of your, your suggested remedy of, of uh, addressing it through the Controlled Substances Act is tripped up in great part, I think, by the fact the U.S. is signatory to these three major international drug treaties, and most nations are. So under obligations brought about by membership in these treaties, these nations, including the U.S., need to have some kind of a Controlled Substances Act, and it's certainly where ours comes from. And even the concept of scheduling carries over directly from these treaties. So Mm -hmm. I don't think it's realistic to expect the U.S. would ever just scrap the Controlled Substances Act. But, you know, we have legal right and ability, even under those treaties, to schedule stuff as the nation desires, as Mm -hmm. regulators deem, and and to grant things like religious exemption. Indeed, in fact, those treaties have explicit language in them encouraging religious exemption. Encouraging it. I didn't know that. I. You know, the only kind of treaty, uh, the, 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 you know, the drug control treaty thing, it's just reading the religion cases and that, and I didn't ever read too far into it where they were actually encouraging religious exemption, but I do know, understand the debate about ayahuasca, whether it fit in there, whether the U S has a duty, a compelling governmental interest to continue to be the leader, whatever they said in the UDV case that the court was yeah. like, yeah, no. Yeah. And, and not to overstate the encouraging part. I don't want people to get a misimpression. It's yeah. not that the treaties uh, specifically advocate or encourage in the sense mm-hmm. that they want to see numbers of psychedelic religions, increase, yeah. but rather encourage the tolerance and existence of such practices within member yeah. nations. Yeah. Uh, just to say the treaties specifically do not prohibit these, nor do they encourage prohibition. Yeah. So yeah. at the top level, uh, there's an acknowledgement internationally that there's a, a deep, dark, historicity to this that goes back into the mists of time uh, to prehistory and forward. But to your point, I think, about the the racist implications, yeah, most uh, instances where these religions are meeting with resistance here in the U.S., I think, is born of these old prejudices because these religions are generally associated with non-Caucasian people from non-Caucasian dominant countries and cultures. And, you know, your, your, your local uh, conservatives don't generally jive with that. Yeah. It's not what it looked like to them growing up. Yeah. It's, it's a, you know, it's weird with the, with the conservatives because they do advocate for strong religious protection laws, you know what I mean? Uh But then when you come face to face with with allowing these but you know then again we have justice chief justice john roberts who i fear who i feel isn't like extremely conservative but you know him approving the udv uh back in 2006 or authoring the opinion anyways you know so i do think that and again that might have been to do with their affiliation with the catholic church 
Yeah, well, it's a dangerous practice to start picking on particular religious behavior really because that will yeah. boomerang right back at you and yours before you can finish the sentence. Uh, not to mention it's unconstitutional. You know, you've got City of Bourne, for example, is a great case mm -hmm. for exactly that point. Mm -hmm. You cannot pick on uh, Santeria chicken sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's a slip. You're right. It's a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. uh, once you once you start clipping religious practices, you know. Well, I say this, especially ones where people are just being peaceful and not like for like doing anything really wrong or harming anyone. And you start cutting in on that activity, well, man, you know, there's a lot of, uh, even Christianity, you know, look, some Catholic churches serve alcohol to minors. Mm -hmm. you know, my cousins are Catholic. They they were drinking wine, actual wine, the Catholic church, 14 years old, you know? Yeah, there's all sorts of religious practice that to certain cultural groups would be perfectly fine and normal, nothing weird about it, mm -hmm. but to the eyes of other cultural groups could be abhorrent. Mm -hmm. uh, take, uh, mention this on the show previously, and I'll bring it up mm -hmm. again, take the practice of circumcision. You mm -hmm. know, some people might just be completely freaked out by that. Yeah. We know it's a practice that's, that's millennia old mm -hmm. in a religious context specifically. Mm -hmm. Do you pass a law that says you can't do that anymore? I don't think you'd get that through in the U.S., but yeah. compare that now to female circumcision, which is practiced mm -hmm. in certain parts of the world. Mm -hmm. I don't think you could get away with that in the U.S., but yeah. it would be a hell of a religious case to fight. Yeah. There's merit yeah. to it. It all comes down to compelling governmental interest, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> or under federal law anyways, you know, and um, yeah, it's, that's, that's an interesting concept too. The, in the terms of psychedelics, it's like, as more research is, you know, cause a part of that is safety, you know what I mean? What about the safety of these things? And so as research is done and safety profiles are proven, does that presumably lower you know lower the government's compelling interest or or did not you know take away from that going to court against you know entheogen based religious practitioners yeah well i think the government's only entree into the conversation at all is merely the fact that these substances appear on the schedules yeah if, if they were removed from the schedules or just given their own special category that's the end of the conversation. There's nothing more for DEA yeah. to fuss with. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And do you, do you think at the end of the road, let's just focusing on psychedelics and theogens, that class of substances, do you see a rescheduling of them eventually? Um, that's a great question. So what I think will have to happen, of course, any iteration of a psychedelic that achieves FDA approval, like what we see happening uh, right now with some of these psilocybin compounds and MDMA, those have to be rescheduled. Otherwise, no pharmacy could ever hand them out. No mm -hmm. doctor could ever script them. So that's going to happen, but it'll be specific to those compounds. Mm -hmm. I don't think it necessarily automatically means that the sources, like we'll just use the psilocybin thing because it's the easy example. So you get some synthesized psilocybin compound, let's say on schedule three, does that necessarily mean the psilocybin mushroom and psilocybin itself also jump down to schedule three? I don't think DEA is going to do that. But the fact that a compound, which is chemically, well, here we go, guys, analogous, 
Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Really should <laughs> yeah. follow to the lower schedule. So what I think happens is as soon as our buddies in the pharmaceutical industry are finished getting their application paperwork approved, that sets the stage for the probable lawsuit by somebody to argue that, yeah, the psilocybin that you just approved in iteration should be approved in its original source as well. Yeah. Well, because technically, theoretically, you're violating the analog act. You know what I mean? Like, like if yeah. you're using this lower one, you're mm-hmm. violating the analog act, right? You got something structurally yeah. similar with the same effect, and you're definitely marketing is having the same effect. That's a textbook case under the analog act. Yep. Are you going to go prosecute those people? Good, good question. And then uh, I learned this from a, a criminal defense practitioner buddy of mine. Apparently, in, in criminal world, there's a thing called rule of lenity that stands for the proposition that if the court's faced with two ways to interpret uh, uh, outcome from a, a statute that the court has to go with the less severe interpretation. You always have to cut the defendant the break. So I think there might be a rule of lenity argument that could be brought on premise that if the iteration is schedule three, so too should the source. Yeah, that's it. I, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard it, but I never really thought too much about that rule. Hmm. Um, but man, well, I, that, that I throws an criminal interesting practice at all. So yeah, that, yeah, I've never done a whole lot of it and, and everything's just been usually, you know, worked out with the DA real quick. I never had to go so far as to do a criminal trial or anything. So, hmm. um, but uh, yeah, no, that's interesting. And, um, you know, let me ask you this. Is there any way to force a reassessment of prior scheduling decisions in the in, in the Controlled Substances Act? Um, there are mechanisms by which you could apply to challenge the scheduling. Sure, sure. I've, I've never undertaken one. I've not had a client yet who's asked to try that. But but isn't that time sensitive? What I'm saying is like, is there a way to open up a case and lodge an objection to, let's say, dimethyltryptamine being Schedule 1? I think so. I would think so. And, and think of it this way. If you if you go through the machinations of petitioning DEA to do that, mm-hmm. you'll go through the administrative hula hoops, just like Ames Institute did for its right to try application, mm-hmm. at the end of which you will end up uh, with a letter saying no. <laughs> Yeah, you'll file that federal lawsuit and get a judge to order them to do it. But it's a long, slow, expensive process to get. There. Yeah. 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 Man. Yeah. And unfortunately, so, process and procedure are baked into the system. So this is not something the average citizen is going to go do. No, nah, you're right. Um, although I think as society, we're moving towards possibly citizens or interest groups who would be interested in doing stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, foreshadowing. Thanks for the segue. Uh, I've mentioned to you my, my, my crazy idea of undertaking the creation of some sort of a uniform model act that could be a national act for re well, not even re regulating regulating because right now it's forbidden. So regulating these things at the state level. Um, cause you know, we've seen all over the country, there are, are cities and little communities that are popping up with their own local initiatives to change their local law enforcement priorities, mm-hmm. which is great. I fully support it, but it's not a long-term solution to this problem. No. Yeah. Uh, so what I had was this harebrained idea. Let's create a model act 
like the uniform commercial code where you've kind of pre-scripted everything you could possibly want and think of in a full comprehensive body of law to regulate the space uh bring in the best people you've got to write this thing as intelligently as you can so that you can take it to any legislature and say look we've done the heavy lifting for you you don't even have to invest in writing it we've already written it mm-hmm. and there are 14 states in the country that allow for public initiatives so if you didn't want to take it to your local legislature, you could run this thing as a campaign and get it on the ballot as an initiative or a referendum. So um, we're actually doing that. The the Law and Regulatory Committee of the Psychedelic Bar Association, of which I am committee steward, has uh, expressed interest in taking this on. So it's a real thing and it's really happening. And, and the reason I said thanks for the segue is not even an hour before we logged in to do this show, I posted a video of me talking about this so there's a good 45 ish minutes of me just blathering on about what i envision this could be and how we get there so and so what is it again it's 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 a like you a law for what again the the idea here would be because i'm not figuring the feds are going to change anything so yeah i'm looking at cannabis as the example here so what i'm envisioning is that each state would enact a state level body of regulation addressing psychedelic substances that okay. takes you from where we are right now, which is total prohibition, into a regulated environment as opposed to just decriminalization. Because I, I personally think the country's not ready for just decriminalization. I, I don't think there's enough education and responsibility out there to just let the genie out of the bottle and hope it all works out. I think mm-hmm. people need help getting there. And I think within like two or three generations, It'll be culturally normalized, and then you could look at maybe doing away or stripping down those regulations. But I think a regulatory bridge that balances access as well as safety, that emphasizes mm-hmm. education, not necessarily promotion, mm-hmm. all good stuff. And I think that's yeah. make it palatable to the segment of the population that isn't comfortable with this, because I don't think there are enough people yet who are comfortable with it that you could win a vote at the ballot box. So you've got to pander yeah. to the bigger population that isn't comfortable with it yet. And I think you do it by demonstrating that you've really thought this thing through and you're emphasizing safety. So voila, a uniform model act that could be adopted in all 50 states if the legislatures yeah. in those states had the foresight and will to do so. And the best part is because the Psychedelic Bar Association has drawn Really, honestly, and I'm not saying this to exaggerate, but it has drawn the best minds in the country on this topic. Yeah. The talent we have, the the depth of that bench is ridiculous. So to be able to say we have the best college of minds on psychedelics and the law drafting these laws, it doesn't get better than that. No legislature yeah. could ever hope to do better than what we could do. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So that, like you say, so would it be something to where you have different provisions they can pick from? Like, yeah. you know, like it's each section, you can pick three different section A's, B's, C's, just yeah. depending on what their idea of their regulated system would look like. Yeah, exactly. So you, you'd make like um, a skeleton and then you can strap on as much meat onto the skeleton as you want in the form of different modules. So if you live in a state where maybe they, they don't want to address a particular thing, just leave mm-hmm. that module out. Uh, but if you live in a state that's really interested in the full-throated experience, they can grab all the modules, plug them all in, and run that through the legislature. Or Oh, wow. So that's the hope. So, for example, we could address things like um, 
religious exemptions and protections because there's there are several states that don't have a, an iteration of riffraff. Yep. Yep. frankly use the help we can create a module for that that's big. yeah uh you know you're going to absolutely need a module that addresses decriminalization because unless you change criminal laws nobody's going to be able to access so yeah it's going to be part of like a ubiquitous dna uh, mm -hmm. no matter where you are uh you could have modules that address whether you want industrialization and if so at what level do you want to have dispensaries like cannabis or do you want to limit it to just home cultivation home production only do you want to have uh, commerce be permitted or commerce up to a certain level? Or do you want to have a rule that says no commerce at all? You can grow it. You can have it, consume it. You can't sell it. You can craft a law like that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then other like crazy notions I've got. If you're going to have some iteration of qualification for people to participate, like, for example, you got to go get a driver's license to drive your car. How about a psychedelics license? Uh, you know, you pass a test in lifetime, you can, you know, indulge. You've you've demonstrated that you've got enough yeah. education to be self-responsible. That's your Yeah, company. yeah, yeah. No, I like that. Yeah, of course that people take and get certified or where they yeah. can then go to the dispensary and Yeah, and and then and then also to overcome the problems that I think poor Oregon is suffering right now just trying to get enough insurance in place and funding in place to open up these nonprofit centers. Uh, what about baking in terms and conditions like um, immunity? Maybe you permit a center to administer and produce these things and provide them to the public, but mm -hmm. because attracting insurance is so difficult, mm -hmm. render them immune. Make yeah. the patient self-responsible that provided the facilities given you the thing they said they were going to give you and not some tainted, adulterated product, they're mm -hmm. immune from suit. You can't go after them. Yeah. That might be a module to include as well, yeah. depending on what the jurisdiction wants. Uh, yeah, you can include qualifications for the types of substances. You can include um, pathways to add additional substances if people want to have like an application process whereby, uh, let's say, oh, I don't know, pick a substance, uh, ibogaine. You didn't have ibogaine on the original list, but you want to now get it on the list. You can create a pathway for that to happen. Yeah, no, I, I like that. And it's probably going to be a lot easier to get them to go with it if you've already done all the hard work, you know. Exactly. <laughs> you spend the money one time doing the best possible yeah. effort anybody could do. And, you know, I, I'm going to guess we can probably get this thing drafted for maybe a couple hundred grand. Part okay. of it, I'm going to I'm going to want to have the uh, committee do fundraising uh, and pay the people who are drafting it so that they're really focused on it and giving yeah. it the best work. Because, you know, yeah get when you get something for free it's mm -hmm. worth what you paid so yeah you know i don't think it'll be difficult to fundraise so that's going to be part of it i'm, I'm encouraged yeah, no. we have a very conspicuous website and start the campaign now get this into the public sphere and public eyes okay. now yeah uh, i'll be glad to I'll, I'll be glad to do any kind of uh fundraising y'all just let me know and i'll be glad to throw it to anybody i know who might be interested in putting some money that way i might put some of my own money into it yeah, and I, that's frankly how I'd prefer to do the fundraising. I'm sure we will attract some institutional dollars, but I would prefer to get those dollars from the grassroots because that will help us to start the campaign, start elevating awareness and getting people interested. And I think that uh, grassroots dollars are going to be your first litmus test on whether people really want this. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good idea. Yeah. No, I... um. And I think that would be, a, like you say, a great initial move. 
uh, if you can start getting the states to follow suit and stuff like, and you know, here's my, here would be my argument, I guess in a roundabout way to some people who have doubts as to, I mean, yeah, there's been some at the local levels, but I mean, for what it's worth, the sky hadn't fallen out there. You know, Denver's still standing. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if any major issues have been noted since some of these jurisdictions decriminalized. Yeah, well, let's take cannabis as the example. A mild psychoactive, but psychoactive nonetheless. Mm -hmm. You know, crime didn't spike in the U.S. Mm -mm. Deaths didn't spike in the U.S. Mental illness didn't spike in the U.S. other than what COVID revealed was already there and then exacerbated. But that's not cannabis's fault. Yeah. In point of fact, I would argue from direct experience here in my home state, seeing the statistics of sales, uh, cannabis sales spiked biked during covid and i mean oh yeah it probably got some people through some rough days man you know that got people through some rough days heck yeah absolutely heck yeah during a time like covid like literally chilling out stoned watching tv on the couch it's like a good activity you know you're not going crazy just Mm -hmm. like actually biding your time you know and, and being especially if people were uh uh you know had to stay home yeah by by the way imagine if the prisons would allow inmates to use cannabis. I saw a thing um, where this show uh, is a preview for it, but apparently there's some prison in Africa where the guards were just like bringing weed in, let the prisoners smoke weed because it made them so it made their job easier. Basically like the people were just (laughs) calm these people down, relax, give them some relief. Mm -hmm. You know, they're in for whatever they're in for um, maybe deserved, maybe not. But, you know, nobody's getting hurt giving these folks a little relief. Mm-hmm. And hell, you know, maybe start a program where you grow it right there on the prison grounds. Train yeah. these people how to do it so that when they get out, guess what? They've got a skill set to go work in this industry. Yeah. It's yeah. a win-win all the way around. Yeah. Um, can we shift to the ahe again? I'm yeah. sorry, we kind of drifted away. Is it cool? We shift to the ahe? I um. Yeah, this is what wanted, happens when you get a bunch of psychedelic lawyers. I know, together. I know. There's so many topics <laughs> to cover, man. I'm like, yeah. it's, it's, uh, but I'm, you know, the Yahe, because we were supposed to have Charles here and you're obviously in Arizona and I think you're, you're fairly well familiar with, with a lot of the facts too. Um, the settlement offer. I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, again, once, once the smoke cleared and the court was ready to take on their substantive arguments, they offered to to at least begin, and again, I don't know if they've even entered formal formal negotiations, but they're at least in talks of settlement. Yeah, I'm not I'm not privy to what the details of yeah. that would be, so it would be complete speculation on my part, uh, which I hesitate to do. But yeah, what I can say though is, if there's a settlement, obviously it's going to be only as to the parties involved. It's not going yes. to that a national precedent. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't fathom any single litigant could actually in settlement get the administration to completely change a practice. But yeah. but it should end in that because if DEA is truly addressing an issue in how it goes about enforcing its regulations, then mm-hmm. it logically follows that whatever change it's going to make should be systemic. But I kind of doubt it. Yeah. Uh, you know, my question, I wonder this, do you think that this move to try to settle with the Ahe is another ruse more or less like soul quest, right? I mean, yeah, they offered to settle. Then they came and wrote this denial letter. Now they had to, 
you know, go to the circuit court. I mean, obviously the Arizona Yahe lawyers have learned from that. Hmm. Um, you know, my, if I were in their positions before, as soon as they came, two things, one, we're going to stipulate into the record that no matter what y'all decide through these negotiations will not be a final agency decision under 893 and two, eight months tops, you know, or put some kind of reasonable timeline. I mean, I would imagine that's probably one of the first things that they've mandated from them. And if so, does that mean that they're not trying to pull a soul quest on Arizona Yahe? Here again. And I know there's a lot yeah. of surmising and, and speculation here, but this yeah. is kind of where my mind is going on, yeah. on trying to read it. Okay. So let me, let me put on my imaginary other side hat. So I'll yeah. just put on my imaginary devil's yeah. hat with the horns. Okay. Yeah. I'm now DEA. What is my intention? What is my goal? Is my goal to acknowledge and to correct what is a flaw in how DEA goes about administering this? Is that my goal? I don't know if that's my goal. I don't think it is. I think my goal is to get this to go away in a fashion that isn't going to boomerang back on the administration that we're not going to be held to it as the new standard or bound to it as a universal rule. Mm -hmm. I think that's what they would do. Uh, okay. I'd like to think they would think, you know what? We're an organic institution. We can grow same as any other institution. And, uh, you know, we evolve through our problems, not into them. And this is a problem and we're going to evolve through it. I'd love to think the DEA would, would take that approach and say, yeah, let's, let's, hear from the people afflicted by this and see if we can't make it better in a mutually satisfying fashion ubiquitously. I'd like for them to do yeah. that. I just don't think they will. You're talking about new guidance. Yeah. Yeah. New, yeah. New guidance and new ways they go about enforcement. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I don't think they have the institutional will to embrace change. So if I'm right about that, then I have to ask the next question, which would be, okay, if I'm not looking for institutional change, what do I want? And what I would probably want in that circumstance is, again, get rid of this as quietly as possible without mm -hmm. making it sticky. Mm -hmm. So to your point, Greg, yeah, I think a settlement offer that is enough to placate that plaintiff to make that plaintiff go away mm -hmm. is where I would try to direct my offer. Yeah. And the reason for that would be if I didn't otherwise limit that offer then i am doing the opposite of what i want mm -hmm. so yeah the real question is whether or not said plaintiff is capable of being placated because the one thing yeah. the DA doesn't want is an appellate decision and the best yep. way to keep away from an appellate decision is, is having a trial court decision <laughs> yeah 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 now all yeah. that being said taking my devil's advocate hat off for a moment and now putting yeah. on my altruistic plaintiff's hat uh, <laughs> i would want to take this case all the way through and crazy as it sounds i'd want to lose at the trial court at the trial court so that mm -hmm. i'd have a reason to go get that appellate decision so mm -hmm. that i can kick the door open for everybody else and myself at the same time if mm -hmm. i'm being the altruistic plaintiff yeah yeah absolutely but that's asking too much here because these yeah, are yeah, religious yeah. groups that have incredibly tight or even non-existent budgets, as most mm -hmm. religious groups do. Uh, and it's not fair to ask them to pay for everybody else. 
But if yeah, they would, I would hope they would. Yeah, yeah, I would. I would never look. I get it. Litigation is expensive and it's resource draining in all in many different regards, right? Yep. Um, yeah, I would never expect that. You know, it's to me to see the DEA just even willing and and perhaps even a successful negotiation settlement with them. Yeah, it doesn't put anything in the court record per se, but it does indicate that if you come possibly with strong enough facts you can get a favorable resolution, even if it's just for you, you know, but I mean, Uh do you, and the thing is, is if they, there are going to be some churches. I I do believe that there's successful settlement with settlement with Arizona Yahe. I do believe it's going to empower some churches to go get the money to go file a lawsuit against the DEA. I really do. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kicking the can down the road. I agree. Yeah, Yeah. Even if the DEA settles, uh, and whoever's involved in that settlement won't be able to, take national advantage of it somebody else will they'll be able to point to that settlement and say look dea is now treating people in this position disparately which is per se unconstitutional yeah so downstream yes it helps regardless no question about it so again to these plaintiffs i don't look to them and say well you're carrying the ball now you've got to do it for all of us yeah 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 not fair to them again yeah they would but i can't ask that yeah, uh, but I will say for anybody listening at home, <laughs> these folks are always looking for donations, and I'm sure the legal teams over there would really appreciate it because it keeps them mm-hmm. going. Yeah. Um. I'll, so the, here's a question. Now, SoulQuest might get, and again, we don't know the outcome of it. We you can only theorize at this juncture, but theoretically, they could get an appellate court decision, a favorable one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is also within realm of possibility. I haven't peeked at, at what's going on with them lately, but I did hear that um, they have been civilly sued. Yeah, I think that civil suit's been going for a while. Yeah, um, I, I don't know where it's at at this point, though. I think, yeah, I don't know really the status of the civil suit either. It's been going on as much civil litigation, personal injury yeah. uh, does a lot of times for a while. Um, that's a good question. I'll see if I can find out and report back. Um, I'm kind of close to the source here in Florida. Um, but yeah, you know, obviously there are some facts that we could probably theorize on here uh, yeah. between why SoulQuest got a denial and is now at the appellate court versus why Arizona Yahe uh, presumably is in some type of meaningful settlement discussions with, with the DEA, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, well, at inception of this, really, it's it's Soul Quests having applied for the exemption, which yes. I, I don't think Yahe Assembly specifically did. No, they said, I wish Charles was here. My impression is that about two weeks before they filed suit, Charles sent them a letter letting them know that they would not be applying and that they would be filing a lawsuit. Yeah, and I think yeah. then they filed the lawsuit, and I think the DEA, and again, these are just allegations. I don't know if this is true. But I think the the lawsuit was the icing on the cake, and that possibly could have prompted them to go to the Maricopa County Sheriff's Department. Oh, probably. <laughs> Very likely. Yeah, you've yeah. got to be careful what, what animal you're poking, particularly. That's right, yeah. What that animal is. Yeah. Uh, but- I, I guess, I guess you know, lawsuit, okay. You know, soul quest suit them, but, but a letter and a lawsuit? Like, <laughs> you've crossed the line there, Charles. Yeah. But the, they're they're really compelling, interesting cases, and they really are. What I wonder how this ultimately shakes out, because I, I think this 
big, 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 big overarching question, does someday land at the U.S. Supreme Court? Mm -hmm. And I think it boils down to who yields the First Amendment or U.S. drug laws? Because mm -hmm. the way DEA currently in, uh, interprets how it's supposed to do what it's supposed to do, I think DEA's position is that the drug law gets enforced first, and then if you want it not to apply to you, you have to prove up your religious exemption, because that's exactly what they say. They give you a paper or form to fill out, and you've got to send in all this stuff, and then they'll let you know. Mm -hmm. But and you've heard me say this before, Greg, that I, I think it's backwards. I, I think you start yes. with the presumption that First Amendment precedes that criminal law and thus for yep. must be the first filter mm -hmm. in the analysis. And mm -hmm. I think DEA switched positions on those filters. Yep. Yeah, your 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 proposal that and I'll just kind of reiterate my understanding of it again, that basically you know, if you're a sincere religious practitioner, you simply file an attestation, right, with them, not something that they do this super long review or investigation on. You merely file under oath, attested, you know, that you're a sincere religious practitioner. Here's what our practice entails. Here's what sacrament or sacraments we use. Uh, and then, you know, being in that basically within that, the DA say, okay, you filled out the paperwork, here's your license. And then, like you say, here comes the, the other side. Now, if they think you're violating the drug laws by being insincere or some other compelling governmental interest there, coming coming after those people after the fact. Yeah, or I could, I could say it this way, too. DEA says uh, you're claiming a religious exemption. You prove it. Mm -hmm. I think that's backwards. I think rather what it should be is, hey, DEA, you're saying I don't have a religious exemption. You prove it. Yeah. That's what it should be. Yes. The presumption walking in and through their hallway, virtually speaking, mm -hmm. should be that you do have the religious exemption until mm -hmm. DEA proves otherwise. Mm -hmm. That because let's just use a crazy analogy. That's like the police saying, um, hey, prove you didn't commit a murder. Yeah. Prove I did. Why are we even having yeah, that conversation? Yeah. yeah. So any crime, yeah, yeah, because that's that's what they're trying to argue. So, yeah. Uh, and thank you for, by the way, summarizing my uh, my my suggestion. Yeah, I, I did my best. No, that was that was perfect, because yeah. that's I think that's the fair, correct response. Yeah. Yeah. If look, if they by all means, if they feel someone's being insincere mm -hmm. or really what they're doing isn't religious, as the DA might feel that the law defines or being unsafe or, or creating a diversion risk yeah go after them yeah if you and can imagine, prove your case in imagine this in a literal practical experience you're importing eh, we'll just say ayahuasca because that seems to be the thing most people import these days yep so you're importing your ayahuasca isn't it so simple for customs and dea to kind of see visually whether you're importing for a religious group versus you're a trafficker just by the volume so for example yep. i import 70 55 gallon industrial drums of ayahuasca is that really for a church group yeah 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 am i importing several gallons of ayahuasca that looks way more like for a church group absolutely it can't possibly say there's nothing in front of it at this moment of transaction that it it you know can't look at there are well, things and, to look at yeah and if you remember on the sacrament quantity 
issue. You know, in the Santo Dime case, Jonathan Goldman had quite a bit of, mm -hmm. of ayahuasca that they seized from him, and they made that argument. Oh, this is more than they could consume in a year. And the judge was like, no, 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 no. Like, like they're, you know, they're welcome to have a extra ayahuasca. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like they have to have exactly one cup for each person, each ceremony. You know, Absolutely. But the outrageous quantity would be on a list of criteria that DEA could say, hey, you know, yeah. probable cause or reasonable suspicion to ask yeah. questions. This would mm -hmm. be one thing that would lead us to ask more questions. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. Yeah, because yeah, you're running the mill ayahuasca church. Again, do serving maybe 20 participants, 30 participants tops twice a month. I mean, you're not going to need that much. You know, you order twice, three times a year. It's That's not just an extreme yeah. same amount. By you know? A number of factors, including absolutely perishability, shelf life uh mm -hmm. need of the congregation accessibility yeah you know, like you compare it say to like uh, we started the conversation before uh we got going today about peyote you know it takes mm -hmm. 30 years for that cactus to reach maturity so are you gonna have like yeah. a lot of peyote around a peyote church you betcha because it takes <laughs> fucking forever to grow yeah uh, contrasted with if you're a mushroom church are you going to have literal tons of mushrooms around probably not because they grow pretty handily and quickly so yeah 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 absolutely yeah of supply and need that's right yeah i am um, and i've always told people this just my thoughts it's like you know when it comes to san pedro or or peyote it's like if someone sits with a plant for over 10 years and takes care of it like in my opinion, no one has any interest to tell that person what they're going to do with it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like you put all that time and energy into it. Like, hey, you earn the right to consume or not consume or do whatever you want to with that thing. Good Lord. Yeah. And the cactus just sits there. It's not like it's a yeah. house pet. You don't get to <laughs> snuggle it. All you're doing is yeah. investing effort. Yeah. You're yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so that's interesting. And, you know, let's say in the event SoulQuest does win on their 11th circuit appeal. Do you see a, a Supreme court move subsequent to that with the DA? Oh, Ooh, that's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. Um, boy. Okay. So let me, hang on. Let me get my devil's advocate. Hat yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm DA and I just got my ass handed to me by a severe adversary. Oh God. Do I live with that? Do I go after it? Ugh. I, I, you know what? I bet the U.S. Attorney's Office appeals, or, or yeah, I, I, I think they would take it on. At least uh, ask for cert. Yeah, even if, if not to completely reverse the outcome, at least to attack aspects of it for avenues they might want to keep open. I, I think an appeal almost is obligatory. Okay. I think, so. and, but it, but again, like I said, that's no guarantee that the Supreme Court will even take it. You know, it actually is pretty rare that they do take cases, but um, yeah, but this one has a major religious aspect to it, and we have a yeah. very pro-religious court right now that has not absolutely the urge to touch a single religious case. So, uh, if you're going to do that, this is the court to have, and this is the time to do it. Are you saying to appeal to to the Supreme Court? Or are you saying on 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 yeah. pro religious practitioner? You you think that the Supreme Court would be uh, pro or con? If you have an axe to grind on a religious legal issue, this is the Supreme Court you want because they'll probably take it. Okay, I think so. 
Yeah. Particularly right. if, if it comes down on the, the side of uh, a government decision against the religious practice. Oh, you're saying that if the government did something against the religious practice, they would want to take that up to, to, I think uh, we're open to cert. And, and I'm, yeah. I'm analogizing specifically to recent events of all of the different religious cases that got filed during the pandemic involving um, the governor's or executive's orders that were closing public accommodations and churches and synagogues around the country sued saying, hey, you, you can't executive order close our religious group. You, you, you violated our constitutional rights. And the Supreme Court took, I think, two or three of those cases, didn't they? And, and ruled favorably for the religious groups. Or did they? Oh, no, I didn't know that. But that is good to know. Uh, yeah. In Texas, where Ian and I are licensed, um, the, the state government uh, amended the Constitution to, to say that that police or local officials can't create a law or ordinance or anything interfering with religious services. Uh, literally that broad? More or less. Yeah. I mean, would you say, Ian? Yeah. Yeah. It's like... Yeah religious services are deemed essential and that no law enforcement officer or local or yeah, local or state uh, is to interfere with religious services. Interesting. Yeah, practices or observances and it says state or any local subdivision all the way down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Churches were already declared essential in the previous legislative session. So don't uh, have to follow evacuation oh. orders. So. Okay, so so it's just a designation of religious practice as an essential service, so that whenever there's, for example, an executive order aimed at essential services, no, 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 no sorry, 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 it's it's two things. We yeah. we amended the constitution, and in the previous legislative session, churches yeah. were deemed essential. So it's like, you know, double the protection along with your religious protection. We no no we, nobody we have... can come on your property. Yeah. Yeah, we have clients in Texas that have like made their own signs. So when they hold ceremony, uh, they post them like on the door or outside a gate or something like that. Just saying, hey, we're, we're engaged in religious service. <laughs> uh, not to be morbid, but has anybody bothered to do a compare and contrast of those change laws against what happened in Waco? <laughs> like would um, the outcome have been completely different if that law had been in place at the time? That's a good question. I mean, you know, that's that is a very interesting question. Obviously, uh, allegedly, they had evidence that they were violating some pretty serious crimes, you know, so I don't know how that would have played out uh, in that instance. Mm. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would just imagine this. If they think that someone is in good faith directly in harm's way, I would find it hard that that it would have to it, it may be really what what the law in Texas is really intended is that, you know, absent. It had to have intended absent somebody like calling 911 say I'm getting murdered or something really bad is happening. Now, that'd be a different situation. There's emergency exceptions to all kinds of laws. You know hmm. what I mean? Okay. So I would imagine that might be a different story. But, you know, again. Let's say, for instance, in a theogenic ceremony is going on, right? Maybe the neighbor calls, say, hey, I think they're down there having some type of event or ceremony with psychedelics. Well, I, I would say that if you if the cops were to go and see that sign, absent any kind of other overt emergency situation, I would say they would have to yield. Hmm. Interesting. My impression. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to take a look at this Texas law. Maybe I can. Yeah run it through some people here in Arizona because there's uh, strong 
uh, religious legislative uh, presence here in my state. So, oh, is there? Oh, okay. Yeah, um, we've we've got some pretty uh, dyed in the wool, super conservative religious types here, and and they do tend to be on the legislature. So, yeah, yeah we're, and we're, um, we're in a weird he, moment in Arizona history. It's a weird <laughs> purple mauve chartreuse and something else. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, and also I think as you're aware, Texas passed a veteran psychedelic bill. Yeah. Yes, they did. Yes, mm-hmm. encouraging the study of. And then uh, Dell Medical School uh, has a school for psychedelic studies now in Austin. That was uh, was seed funded by Tim Ferriss and some other people, Ian. Yeah. Ian, I think, sits on, on the advisory board. Oh, nice. So, mm-hmm. None of that's official yet, but yeah, I've been helping them since they got started. And uh, yeah, that seems like that's the basis for offering Austin's uh, center of the universe is that you've got the bill that allows all 18.8 million veterans in the country who have a PTSD doesn't say where the diagnosis has to come from or that has to come from the VA could come to Texas and actually participate in a study to uh, get mushrooms. And of course uh, that all in all the FDA studies on psych on schedule one drugs, only 250 people have been helped. So only about 250 people more in the current studies that are uh, in the queue are lined up to be helped. So the, challenges exactly the texas passes a law says hey all 2.5 million veterans live in texas you can come get mushrooms but you know there's a slot for uh 100 people so everyone else uh i i hope you don't become one of the 7,000 a year that kill themselves while you're waiting for the government to uh, approve uh psilocybin is an fda approved drug for sure mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, courtesy of the network, that is the VA. I mean, bringing more attention to this in one location can bring attention to it in all those locations. So mm-hmm. awareness is critical. Yeah. I, I read an article interview uh, that they had with, I think the the VA is actually doing some MDMA studies now mm-hmm. uh, at one of their hospitals in the Northeast. And uh, they interviewed kind of, I guess, the main doctor over it there and like, she spoke very favorably about MDMA and psychedelics generally. You know what I mean? Like, and she even noted that like, you know, yes, some people are going to try this outside the medical institution. You know, we recognize that we just encourage like safety and stuff like that. You know, like sometimes you don't get those medical people being that, that, you know, they, you should never do this at home. It's so dangerous and only with a medical professional, you know? And so it was refreshing to see her kind of acknowledge that look, yeah, people are going to do this at home. It's it's not that dangerous to say absolutely no, but you know, obviously there's some safety precautions that need to be taken, you sure. know, especially with MDMA. Yeah, well, in any substance, there are always safety precautions. Even even the 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 illicit stuff you get, you know, grab any physician's desk reference and look at all the contraindications of any drug in there. That's right. Everything can be dangerous if you do it wrong. That's right. Yeah, just like you know, you can buy as many Advil as you want at the store. Take two to four a day, you're fine. Yep. Take 10 plus, like your liver's going to start bleeding, mm-hmm. you know? And like, so it's just like with anything, you know, it's like, yeah, you can, you can go get a case of beer and drink two, be okay. Drink three quarters of the case, you know, some bad stuff might happen. And that's, you know, that's with anything in life, really, you know? Yep. And it's all part of my argument about just get public instruction and education out there, you know, and right. your example of, of the bottle of Advil, 
-hmm. you know, there are instructions printed on the side of the bottle. That's right. And they That's right. dosage and they definitely don't encourage you to eat the whole fucking bottle in one shot. <laughs> yeah. Does the bottle literally say don't eat the whole bottle in one shot? No, it doesn't literally say that. We yeah, yeah. People are going to be self-responsible. So yeah. Just bake that into the system. We're already right. responsible. Yeah, it's, you know, and I was I was telling Ian this other day, you know, in my heyday, erawid.org saved my life so many times by, you know, I would I would acquire something new and novel, not know anything about it. You could always go on Erawid and, and mm -hmm. read, you know, seemingly credible reports for people like honestly reported their experiences and dosage. And then, you know, from there, you could kind of gauge where you might be or where you want to start, right? And in, in kind of an educated way, I feel Erawid has provided a very valuable resource uh, for people, particularly in this space for a very long time. Oh God, yeah. Yeah, Erawid is our library of Alexandria. No question. Yeah. <laughs> no question about it. Yeah. Listen, yeah. we're at the end of an hour and a half and I have okay. to go do my day job. Yeah, <laughs> no. So let's do this. This was a great episode. You know, look, banter amongst lawyers uh, about this topic. Yes. We covered a lot of great stuff. Yes. I'll, I'll hunt down Charles. I'll find out what happened to him. We'll reschedule what we were going to talk about and we'll still do it. Okay. Yeah, perfect. Uh, in the meantime, though, the other things we talked about, if you can get them over to me, let me take a look and we'll we'll plan on talking about that as well. Okay. Cool. So yeah. on that yeah. note, uh, Ian, since this is your first time on the show, I'm giving you last word. So what do you want to tell the audience? Wow. That, uh, yeah, these kind of conversations are so crucial to our society. So we can uh, do smart things like take back our personal control of our rights and uh, show the government that we're responsible in doing so. So thank you, Gary, for having this and doing the show. And yeah, definitely look forward to ne the next one with uh, Charles where we can yeah, get even more like inside the, the medicine circle uh, analysis under the covers. For sure. So. For sure. All yeah. right. Well, thanks cool. guys. I will catch yeah. Y'all yeah. have a good one. You too. Take care. Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank you.